Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks, and welcome to the last extra helpings of the year. It's mm. been fantastic fun. But before we go any further, Paulie, I can see already in front of me on the table, you got some maps. I got a whole book of them, Mikey. Oh, he's never been so happy. <laughs> and I must admit, I couldn't finish off the year without one or two more maps. So I brought in what I consider to be a couple of real beauties, actually one from the States and one from here in Australia. All right. Okay, so first up, this one, this dates from 1784, so not long after the American Declaration of Independence. And it's when the founding fathers were formulating their plans on what exactly they were going to do to expand westwards towards the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. And I'm afraid to say it, Mikey, it's our own favourite howler again, Thomas Jefferson. I tell you what, he's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't he, mate? <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is Jefferson's offering, and he suggested that with this sort of gap between the 13 colonies on the coast and the, the French bit with the Mississippi, he suggested that they draw two straight lines, vertical lines, one down from the longitude of the Great Falls on the Ohio River, and one south on the point where the Kanawha and the Ohio rivers meet, which is actually known as Point Pleasant in West Virginia. I've heard of that, yeah. So with the Mississippi in the west, as you can see there, and these two vertical lines, you get a sort of ladder Mm. of 10 brand new states in the territory to the west of what were already established as the 13 old colonies. Now, as you'll see, folks, because obviously we'll be putting this one up on the socials. Oh, trust me, mate, people need to see this. <laughs> so as you'll see, just these two straight lines make the whole continent take on a, a very unfamiliar aspect. But to make matters worse, Jefferson <laughs> then proposed to give them all some sort of weird classical name, each from antiquity. Perhaps, I suppose, in the hope that you know it might lend the new creations a bit of gravitas. I'm not quite sure, but his idea was that we'd have states called, are you ready? Yeah. Sylvania, which is sort of roughly where Minnesota is today. And in the Shire in Australia, but keep going. <laughs> you then got Asenisipia. What? <laughs> Asenisipia, which would have encompassed Rock River in modern-day uh-huh. Illinois. You've got Polypotamia, the oh, land dear. of many rivers. And that's where the Wabash and the Ohio and the Missouri and the Illinois and all the headwaters of the Mississippi all bump into each other. And you've even got things like Cheronosis, Pilisipia and Metropotamia. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you got the drift. Yeah, well, I think my drift is Jefferson was always a bit of a tosser. <laughs> well, fortunately, a couple of months after he submitted his proposal, Mikey, you're right. TJ, he was shipped off to Paris, wasn't he? Yeah. To become the US ambassador over there, as we described, unfortunately, in that horrible Sally Hemings episode. And his maps, I'm glad to say, were quickly locked away in a large drawer. And instead, the definitive Northwest Ordinance of 1787, that was the set of maps that was drawn up and accepted. And of course, the Midwest never looked back. Okay, so that's the American map dealt with, Paulie. 
But what have you got about Australia? All right. So, second up, I've got a map drawn for us here in these parts, Michael. It's a map dating from 1838, mm-hmm. by which time, of course, the, the coast of Australia was pretty much well documented, but the interior was still something, you know, of a mystery, like we explained in that Burke and Wills yeah. uh, with the famous old dig tree. Now, this map, this was actually published back in the mother country by the RGS, the Royal Geographic Society in London. And it accompanied an article entitled Considerations on the Political Geographical Nomenclature of Australia. Catchy title. (laughs) Now, the proposal was that when they were dividing up the continent, they wanted to try and keep things neat and tidy and, if possible, fall in with the new decimal system. So Australia will be divided into 10 states. Now, to achieve this, as you can see, they've drawn a horizontal line across the middle of the country from east to west. So you've effectively got a top half and a bottom half, plus Tassie, off on its own. Now, the top half, they reckoned that could be cut into about four roughly equal-sized chunks. And the bottom half, which is, as you can see, slightly bigger, goes into these five segments. So you've got nine states on the mainland, plus Tasmania down below. And looking at it, although obviously you've got a few more state borders than we have at the moment, but otherwise it sort of looks similar, sort of makes sense, even looks vaguely familiar. Vaguely familiar, (laughs) mate, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, but then you start looking at the detail and it begins to get a bit freaky. Let's start with the names. Now you see some, yeah, Victoria, Tasmania, they're very familiar, except (laughs) you'll see they're all in the wrong place. The state... That's basically the bottom half of modern day WA. That's the one that this map calls Victoria. And the name proposed for Victoria as we know it is, <laughs> wait for this one, Guelphia. Okay, what the hell is that, mate? <laughs> okay, well, the House of Guelph. This is the German dynasty that most of the British monarchs were coming from at the time in the 18th and 19th centuries, yeah, before we started borrowing from the Saxa Coburgs. And as if that isn't enough, Mikey, then Tasmania, well, that's the name used for what's now known as the Northern Territories. While Tassie itself, it retains the older Dutch name of Van Diemen's Land. You then got Cook's Land over here and mm-hmm. Flinders Land, Theresia, Carpentaria, which, you know, nothing too controversial about those ones. <laughs> but then you spot the big one. Now, you know how I've already said that Victoria was to be called Guelphia. <laughs> well, not only that, it's also going to be quite a bit bigger than it's turned out to be today. So its northern border, the idea on this map was that it would reach up, up a lot higher than the Murray River. So far, in fact, it goes past and includes Sydney, even your beloved Newcastle. Never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, funnily enough, the good people of Sydney told the RGS exactly where they could stick <laughs> their new proposal. And you'll all be glad to know it never actually left <laughs> the drawing board. Okay, Paulie, remember that episode about you know, songs and recording? We were talking about Thomas Edison. Yes. And how not every invention of Edison's was, was a home run. <laughs> no. I mean, how the automated pen eventually became the tattoo gun. Right. Well, I've got to mention his disastrous foray into iron ore mining. Okay. Now, this was a particular passion in the latter part of Edison's work and in, right at the end of the 19th century. Mm. See, he'd already made a fortune out of electricity and he thought his next calling was to tackle... Well, what he regarded as the scarcity of iron ore, particularly in America's eastern states. Okay. So in 1881, he forms the Edison Ore Mining Company, 
with his brand new patented method of extracting the iron using a large electromagnet. A magnet? Yeah, now, now he believed that this would bring down costs and make once depleted mines profitable again. Mm-hmm. So much so that he, he started work in New Jersey in a mine that well, actually and made an iron ore mine that had been struck back in the 1770s mm. and was considered long past its prime. Now, as is the usual story with Edison, his interest, his interest in it well, waxes and wanes. Mm. But when he was there, he worked with an obsessiveness a bit like the Edison of the good old days. In fact, this iron ore process, he decided was going to be his final legacy. Mm. He even bragged, I am going to do something now so different and so much bigger than anything I've done before. People will forget that my name ever was connected to anything electrical. Wow. Yeah, well, of course. In fact, he even sold some of his shares in GE to finance this iron ore venture. Mm. But by 1899, following almost continuous failure, he shuts the whole thing down. Right. But he dismisses his financial losses with, it's all gone, but we had a hell of a good time spending it. (laughs) Sounds familiar, Mr. Musk. Indeed it does. Well, here's the thing too, mate. Edison being Edison, he always falls bum backwards into money. Because mm. this turned into another unexpected business. So here's the thing, this whole iron ore process and electromagnets, mm. it produced a large quantity of waste sand. Now, hang on, hang on, you know what I'm like with science, but mm. just hang with me. Which, due to this process, was perfect for the manufacture of a harder, more durable cement. Mm. So out of this failure, in 1899, he formed the Edison Portland Cement Company, I mean, you're not going to believe this. Within a decade, he was the fifth largest cement producer in the world. <laughs> now, this leads to one of his more bizarre failures. Cement houses. Okay, I know that sounds good at the start, mate, but I'm mm-hmm. not just talking about houses. I'm talking about the interiors as well. Everything from baths, toilets, sinks, cabinets, beds, and even a piano from one single pour of concrete. That was All made idea. out of concrete. The, uh, from one pour. That was his idea. Look, he did manage to construct a gardener's cottage and a garage on his mm-hmm. own estate using that process. But pretty soon everyone realised it was just, well, actually it was just unfeasible. <laughs> it went broke in the late 1920s. But a few concrete homes, look, they still stand today in Union and Montclair in New Jersey. Wow. Also, too, he did use the process, well, a fair amount of it, to build Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Mm. And that stood till around about 2010 when it was demolished. Mm. But everyone figured out pretty quickly the whole concept was far too complex to ever become the universal, cheap and long-lasting housing solution he had envisaged. Mm. But here's the one thing. Edison himself once said in regards to the old phrase, there's no use crying over spilt milk, he said, I have spilled lots of it. (laughs) And while I have felt it for a few days, it is quickly forgotten. Mind you though, mate, there was one failed venture that haunted him so much that for years afterwards, he referred to them as his little monsters. Mm. Actually, it wasn't just Edison who was haunted by this invention. I started to get the feeling that a whole generation of American children were left emotionally scarred by Edison's 1890 release of Talking Dolls. Talking Matt, these, Dolls. Yeah, Matt, these dolls would not look out of place as villains in any modern-day slasher movie. Ooh. Now, remember how we talked about his work in the early sound recording? Yeah. Well, Edison concluded he could miniaturise his tiny phonograph inside a 56-centimetre doll that weighed around about 4.5 kilos. Right. Now, the doll's torso would be made of tin, and as such, it would hide a small conical horn just around the chest area, bear with me, Mm. then all it needed was four wooden limbs and a porcelain head. Now, this head, it has to be said, contained two of the most freakishly scary dead-souled glass eyes (laughs) you've ever seen, like like shark eyes. Yeah. But that wasn't the selling point. The selling point was the fact the doll could talk. 
And in this respect, it was actually the first recorded device whose sole purpose was entertainment. Mm. Well, well, that was the plan. And after a few rotations of the cranks that protruded out of the doll's back, apparently children would be enchanted to hear the new toy reciter, a short nursery rhyme like Mary Had a Little Lamb, mm-hmm. Jack and Jill, or Hickory Dickory Dock, depending on which cylinder had been shoved in the toy. Right, so these dolls are about two foot tall, and they'd put the phonograph on the inside. On the inside, with the crank on the outside. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Each of these ditties were recorded by Edison's own employees. Mm. See, you have to remember, too, there had to be a different recording for each cylinder. Sure. So at one stage, he had up to 18 young women in individual cubicles reciting nursery rhymes to be installed into what (laughs) one excited newspaper had described as the wonderful toys which Mr. Edison is making for nice little girls. Nice. It should be pointed out, too, that this article was written months before the dolls were released onto the public. Ah. Another thing Edison was always really good at, he was great at you know, ramping up publicity mm. even before, well, a product had been perfected. Right. Now, remember I was talking about those young women that, that were doing the recording. Mm. Well, as I said before, each rhyme had to be individually recorded and at a volume that could not only be picked up by the primitive cylinders but also loud enough to block out the sound of the other worker in the next booth <laughs> recording their own nursery rhyme. Yes. And this had to be done for hours and hours on end. In fact, a modern journalist wrote that this gave the crackly voice of the doll a tone more akin to a victim hollering a ransom demand <laughs> than the gentle sound of a doll reciting a well-known ditty. Ooh. Fortunately for the collective psyche of Victorian-era American children... These terrifyingly voiced dolls soon lost their voice. Ah. As the Washington Post reported, dolls that talk, well, they'd be more entertaining if you could actually understand what they say. And this was one of the kinder reviews of Edison's Little Monsters. Ah. See, the stylus was way too easy to dislodge, Uh the cylinders broke easily, the cranks fell out of the backs, and the (laughs) ones that worked, well, eventually, and quite quickly, they went silent. Ah. As one large toy store owner from Boston wrote to Edison, we have had five or six recently sent back, some on account of the works being loose inside, and others won't talk. And one party from Salem sent one back, stating that after using it for just an hour, it kept growing fainter and fainter, until eventually it could not be understood. So it didn't really work. <laughs> it terrified the kids. And here's the other reason it didn't work. It mm. was really expensive. Ooh. I'm talking a rather hefty price tag of $10 undressed and $20 dressed, right? which is somewhere around about $600 in today's money. <sighs> now, many were returned. And despite an initial run of some $7,500, with $2,500 being shipped to toy stores, these stores actually only sold 500 of these terrifying dolls before they quietly removed them from their shelves. But if you do find one today, mate, they're a collector's item and they're worth a fortune. Okay, so we're back on that episode talking about the song sheets and the printed word. I'm sorry, Maggie, but I can't let us go past talking about printing landmarks without mentioning one of my personal heroes, of course, William Caxton. Now, he was responsible more than any other man in history for standardising the English language, obviously through his printing presses. Oh, the famous Caxton Press, yeah. But the reason I wanted to talk about him today was it didn't all come about without the odd hiccup. So we're in the middle of the 15th century, you know, the sort of Wars of the Roses time, they're all in full swing. And you've got to remember that at this point, England and English, you know, is still very much home to hundreds and hundreds of regional 
dialects. Now, I'm not just talking accents here, Mike. I'm talking separate vocabularies, separate spelling, different grammar, and often completely different names for exactly the same thing. And it's Caxton that we actually have to thank for homogenising them all and largely reformulating the whole language around the London dialect. Now, of course, regularisation on the whole has to be considered a good thing, as you know, it greatly facilitated the final stages in the evolution of English as a language, even though, of course, a few dialects still carried on and still throw up a bit of fun to this day. But this standardisation also meant that some of Caxton's own idiosyncrasies have actually ended up becoming a norm, even if some of them are particularly left field. For example, you've got the spelling of ghost which, of course, now has an H, you know, a silent H. But it appears that hardly anyone in England at the time would use this H at all in any of their writing. And historically, I think it's pretty interesting how all this came about. You see, Caxton, it looks like he was very much influenced in his spellings and the language that he used from his time that he spent living in Bruges, modern-day Belgium Mm -hmm. and the Flemish spelling habits he would have encountered while he was there because young William it turns out he started life very much as a businessman rather than a linguist and following some not insignificant success he actually left England and moved to the Low Countries as governor of the Company of Merchant Adventurers of London. So his goal, Mikey, is very much to to make money rather than to make a new English language. But on these business travels, Caxton observed the new printing industry that was formulating in Cologne. And that led him to start his own printing press in Bruges. And it was at this point that Margaret of York, sister of Edward IV, you know, talking about Mm. the Wars of the Roses, she'd married the Duke of Burgundy and she had also moved to Bruges from England, and she befriended Caxton as a fellow English speaker in the city. In fact, in 1471, Margaret encourages Caxton to complete his translation into English of the Resuel of the Histories of Troy, which is a sort of collection of stories associated with Homer's Iliad. Now, sure enough, this new printing press in Bruges, it goes gangbusters, so much so that Caxton abandons the merchant adventures and returns to England, where he's more than a little bit pleasantly surprised to find heavy demand for his new translation of the Troy books and everything else coming out of his printing presses from Bruges. In fact, there's so much demand that he decides to invest in another set of printing presses and set up shop in Westminster in 1476. And it's in Westminster that the Troy book is followed by an early edition of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Now, as we know, Mikey, printing presses in this period, they really did change the whole landscape. And soon Caxton's moved into chivalric romances, classical works, even the first English translation of Aesop's fables. And the rest, as they say, is history. Is history. But what a couple of listeners wrote in about during that ep and wanted to know a little bit more about was the famous Eggs story that's often been told about Caxton at this time. Okay, eggs. I'm intrigued, mate. Go on. (laughs) All right. So in Caxton's prologue to the 1490 edition of his translation of Virgil's Aeneid, Caxton highlights just how difficult his task was during this time when attempting to find a standardised version of English that would be suitable for everybody to use and for him to use in all his printing presses. 
So he recounts a trip on a boat sailing from London to Zealand, the province in the Low Countries next to Holland, where we get the name New Zealand, New Holland from. Mm -hmm. Now, this boat he was sailing on, it becomes becalmed, and it lands on the Kent side, the south side of the Thames estuary. Now, on board, along with Caxton, there's also a mercer, a cloth merchant, and he goes by the name of Sheffield. And, you know, as that name suggests, he was no doubt from the north, north. of England. Yeah. yeah. So he goes into a house on the shore in Kent and he asks the good wife if he could buy some eggs. <laughs> now, so far, so good. Except the old woman, she replies, I'm very sorry, but I speak no French. What? Well, that's it. So a local bystander, he steps in and suggests that this new customer was probably asking for Aaron. And as soon as he says that this bloke Sheffield is after some Aaron, sure enough, the woman understands and off she goes to fetch the eggs that he was after. Well, for Caxton, this really summed up his predicament and it led to him writing, Lo, what should a man in these days now write? Eggs or Aaron? Certainly it's hard to please every man because of diversity and change of language. But, you know, fortunately for us, Mikey, you know, Caxton and his printing presses, they did succeed and modern English was truly born. But like, like I said, there are still a few rogue dialects, few rogue words flying around. And even I used to get caught out a bit as a kid going up to Newcastle and Sunderland to see my grandparents. But without Caxton's printing press, Mikey, and the standardisation that that brought into the English language, I reckon that many of us still today would be struggling to understand our next door neighbour. Which brings us to our last episode before the end of the year, which is you talking about the Silk Roads. And a word I knew I had heard before, and I knew there was a story I wanted to get out about it, Caravanserai. Yes. Also known as Carnes, Wickelers, and my, my personal favourite, Fun Ducks. <laughs> Look, as you, as you said, they, they're not only found along the Silk Road, but also alongside other earlier roads. As Paulie mentioned in that ep, even the ancient Persian Royal Road, which was two and a half thousand kilometres from their capital at Susa to mm. Sardis on, on, on the coast of modern-day Turkey. Yes. In fact, Herodotus writes about them, and he says, Royal stations exist along its whole length, an excellent caravanserai, and throughout, it traverses an inhabited tract and is free from danger. See, these caravanserai, they're regularly found in Central Asia, in the Caucasus, and also along the Grand Trunk Road into the Indian subcontinent. Yes. In fact, after the 7th century, they spread with the Muslim expansion throughout the Middle East, North Africa, which is where they start to be called funducks. <laughs> and you even find these funducks in where the Ottomans have enclaves into Europe. Yes. Now, most typically, a caravanserai was a square or rectangular building mm. with a single portal wide enough for a beast of burden, usually a camel, to enter one mm. at a time. Now, there was a large courtyard with housing for the animals and stores on the ground floor and rooms for the owners upstairs. Mm. Now, there was water and food on offer, as well as bathing facilities. In fact, some even offered really elaborate public baths. Mm. As you would imagine, shops and markets were found both inside and outside of the fun ducks. You know I'm just going to keep calling them fun ducks, aren't <laughs> you? But here's the thing. They were very strongly built and they were fortified. As I said, there was just one way in and one way out. And in this way, they offered the travelling merchants... A great deal of security. Well, that's right, Mike. And the idea was that there would be a new caravanserai built in very precise locations along each route so that effectively they're very nicely spaced one day's travel apart, one from the next. Okay, but here's the bit that really got me. 
These caravanserais, they were also carefully dotted through western China, thanks to those Silk Road trailblazers that you were talking about, the Sogdians. Yes. In fact, here's the Chinese caravanserai described by, by Paulie's great hero, the 14th century Berber scholar and explorer Ibn Battuta. Yes. Now he writes, China is the safest and best country for the traveller. A man travels for nine months alone with great wealth and nothing to fear. What is responsible for this is that every post station in their country is a funduk, <laughs> which has a director living with a company of horse and foot. Guards, I'm assuming. Yes. In the morning, he and his secretary come and call everybody by name and write down a record. He sends someone with the travellers to conduct them to the next post station and brings back a certificate from the director of the funduk that they have all arrived. If he does not do this, he is answerable for them. Mm. This is the procedure in every post station from Sinal Sin to Kambalik in modern-day Mongolia. Mm. In them is everything the traveller needs by way of provisions, especially hens and geese. Sheep are rare among them. Now, apparently this is a bit of a disappointment for the old Batuta because, well, let's face it, he preferred his lamb to his chicken. <laughs> So these funducts, they're not just providing security for the night, but they're providing security in between locations. Mm. And they're providing provisions. And this brings me to my next point. One of the more unusual moments in modern architecture. <laughs> Quite a few years ago, archaeologists, you, you'd know about this, they, they excavated a caravanserai in the Chinese area known as Shuangkangji. Now this station, it was, it was used between 111 BC and 109 CE. And amongst the finds, mate, there were some pretty interesting documents, some even written on your old ancient silk. Mm. However, there was another considerably less glamorous find. Um, well, mate, there's no way I can dodge this. Though. They were called poo sticks. <laughs> Lengths of bamboo with a bit of cloth on one end, and, well, they were used for wiping your backside. Yes. Now, obviously, they'd been discarded over a period of quite a few centuries. And after being unearthed, they were, they were, they were just discreetly filed away. That is, until Cambridge researchers Hugh Yuan Ye and Piers Mitchell decided to investigate the old sticks. And they found the remains of eggs from four different parasites, mm -hmm. including one particular species that had its origins over 1,600 kilometres away from where the funduck was. Okay, it gets gross. This is the liver fluke worm egg. Now, it needs a wet, marshy environment to thrive on as opposed to the Arab Tarim Basin of northwest China where the sticks have been discovered. Mm. As Hugh Yuan Ye states in his report, our study is the first to use archaeological evidence from a site on the Silk Roads to demonstrate that travellers were taking infectious diseases with them over huge distances. Look, mate, sure, it had been assumed for centuries, as, as we all know, the disease had been spread along the Silk Road. But now, well, now they had the poo sticks to prove it. <laughs> Okay, Mikey, well, for the last one for the year for me, I'm going to go back to that episode we did on space. I like that episode. I had a lot of fun <laughs> in that episode. And this is one story which I think perfectly encapsulates how history from centuries, even millennia ago, is still as relevant and as impactful as ever today. You see, this is a story about the US space shuttle, right. but it's also about the history of the US railways and a classic of those sort of tales about the 
butterfly effect in history. You know, when a butterfly beats its wings in a slightly different manner in the past, you can have different repercussions still being felt in the present. Right. Okay, so we'll be landing with the US Space Shuttle in a moment. But first up, first up, I want to start with the US railroads and the US standard railroad gauge, you know, the distance between the rails. Oh, you don't have to explain to Australian about rail gauge, but that's, that's a whole other episode. All right, now, not a lot of people know this, but in the US, this distance between the rails, this gauge, happens to be 4 foot 8.5 inches. Which, you know, I think you'll agree is a pretty odd number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so why is this the gauge that they used? Well, it's because that's the way they built them in England, and it was English engineers who designed the first US railroads. Which, of course, begs the next question. Yeah, like, why did the English engineers choose 4 foot 8.5 inches? <laughs> right, and the answer to that one is because the first rail lines... They were built by the same people who built the wagon tramways, and that's the gauge they used. Okay, but so why did the trams use that gauge? (laughs) Well, because the people who were building the tramways used the same jigs, the same tools that they'd use for building the wagons. And it was the wagons that used this exact same wheel spacing. Okay, mate, but so why do the wagons have such an odd wheel spacing? Okay, well... That answer goes back hundreds of years. Because as you rightly point out, Mikey, you know, why didn't the carters and wheelwrights try to use a more standardised space, you know, like a, a, a simple four foot or a straight five foot? Yeah. Well, in fact, Mikey, some of them did, but they found that their wagon wheels would break up more often on the long distance roads in England they needed to travel up and down the country. Because you see, four foot 8.5 inches... That's the spacing you find the length and breadth of Britain in terms of the wheel ruts on the old... Oh, don't tell me. The old Roman roads. The old Roman roads, precisely. Because Imperial Rome, it, of course, built the first long-distance roads in England and much of the rest of Europe, of course. They built them for their legions, and they built them, of course, so well that they would last for centuries, centuries after the Roman Empire had long disappeared. Right, but that still doesn't explain the width of the ruts. (laughs) No, it doesn't, Mikey, but at the same time, I suppose it does, because those initial ruts, they were worn in by the Roman war chariots that would accompany each legion on their march and be used by the imperial governors. So, of course, anyone making wagons at the same time, they found it easiest to copy that spacing for their horse carts and their wagons And thus, those original Roman ruts were worn deeper and deeper. And of course, like I said, because those chariots had been made for imperial Rome, they were all uniform, they were all exactly alike in the matter of their wheel spacing. And so that's the wheel spacing you get on all the local wagons. So much so that even almost 2,000 years later... When the United States Railways are laying down their lines, the standard railroad gauge remained at 4 foot 8.5 inches, derived from the original specifications for an Imperial Roman war machine. My bureaucracy lives forever, but but, but hang on, Paulie. Okay, I've got to ask this question. Why do the Roman charioteers choose that width? Ah, well, that is the key, Mikey, and that is the source of of this strangely precise measurement. You see, Imperial Roman army chariots and their wheelbases, they were designed specifically to be just wide enough to accommodate the rear ends of two 
war horses, you know, two horses asses. So you're saying 4.85 is two horses asses. Mate, you're kidding. No, straight up. And I suppose you have to say it did make sense because they didn't want the chariots to be any wider than necessary. But here's the kicker, Mikey, the real twist to the story. All right, you ready? Oh, yeah. Okay, so fast forward to the modern day, and as I promised, the US space shuttle. Okay, so you've got this shuttle. It's sitting on its launch pad. It's got two big booster rockets attached to the sides of the main fuel tank, and it's ready for takeoff. Now, these are solid rocket boosters on the sides, the SRBs. And the SRBs, Mikey, are made by a company called Tiokol at their factory in Utah. Now, the engineers who designed these SRBs, they would actually have preferred to have made them a little bit fatter so they could accommodate a bit more oomph and have a better shape to fit their designs. But... But... (laughs) Yes, but... Now, if you've already guessed, don't shout out, don't spoil the surprise. Here's the thing. These solid rocket boosters, the SRBs, they have to be shipped by train from the factory in Utah to Cape Canaveral, whichever launch site is going to be used. And the railroad line (laughs) from the factory (laughs) happens to run through a tunnel in the mountains and the SRBs have to fit through that tunnel. And of course, the width of the tunnel was originally designed to precisely cater for the width of the railroad track, (laughs) i.e. the width of two Roman horses behind. So you see, the key element to a major component in the whole space shuttle design, the most advanced transportation system the world has ever seen, that width of those two SRBs was determined over 2,000 years ago by the width of a horse's ass. Fabulous. Well, that's it for the year, folks. I hope you've enjoyed all the shows. Well, now it's it's turkey time, and we'll talk to you soon. But do stay tuned, because there are some classic episodes to be played over the holiday season. Mm-hmm.